Hello and welcome to the Make Money and Stick It to the Man podcast with me, Dominic Frisby. Now, this is something I've been working on. It's called Tax Water, Not Work. It's a a policy idea that I've had, a market-based policy to alleviate the UK's housing shortage. And it's a rather a long post, and I think it'll be of some interest to some of you and no interest to <laughs> to many of you. And so, you know, read it, and if you find it interesting, great, and if you don't, well, I apologise. Um, and the other thing I'd say is it's probably better to read this one rather than listen to this podcast, but I just know some people prefer me to read the articles aloud, out loud Um Uh, rather than have to read them. But in this case, I think this is one you should read. But in any case, I'm reading it out loud for those that prefer to have stuff out loud. So as regular readers of my stuff will know, I'm of the view that a society should be designed around direct democracy, that is voting on issues as they come up. Should we legalise drugs? Should we put a cap on immigration, whatever it is? And very low levels of land value tax, what Milton Friedman called the least bad tax. Now, I may dream of Ancapistan, a land of no government, but the reality is that taxation of some kind, even if it be voluntary, is inevitable. There's never been a civilization without taxation. And ideally, land value tax would replace all other taxes. However, if you offered me LVT in the UK and all other taxes, income tax especially, slashed to 10, 15 or 20 percent, I'd probably bite your hand off. Now, my friends in the countryside hate the idea and I get angry messages about it all the time. But I can't stress this enough. The reality, it is the owners of prime city centre real estate, the likes of the Crown, the Grosvenor Estate, major institutions, Who would pay the most tax under this system? Not somebody with 10 acres of field with no planning permission. In my book, Daylight Robbery, I argue for location value tax. It's the same as land value tax, but I use the word location because it's the location of the land, i.e. in city centres, that's more important than the actual amount of land. In any case... Land value tax is not going to happen here in the UK. Introducing a major new tax is too big an undertaking. It's easier for politicians to just raise and lower the taxes they already impose and tinker around the edges of the existing system. LVT would be a whopping vote loser in a nation whose primary concept of wealth is the value of their house. Just explaining it, never mind getting it across the line, is hard enough. And if you want an explainer, by the way, uh, there's a couple of links there in the article for you to click on. Anyway, all this is preamble, and I'm not here to discuss today the merits or the lack thereof of LVT. The purpose of this blog, for the purposes of this blog, just take my word that land value tax keeps the relationship between ruler and citizen, between governor and governed, in healthy, transparent check. With LVT, you pay fewer taxes and lower levels of tax, i.e. less tax overall. So I've been trying to come up with a politically possible means by which one land value tax can be implemented and shown in practice to work so that people better understand it. Two, a way by which beautiful housing can be made affordable to ordinary people 
without collapsing the housing market or having to reform the fiat money system. And three, corporations, particularly crony capitalist building companies, planners, regulators and government are kept out of it and people can be left to their own ingenious devices. And, by George, I think I've got it. So here is my idea, and I stress it is just an idea I'm working through, so there are bound to be flaws. And I'd be grateful for any comments, pointers, thoughts, statistics, data, and so on. So water location value tax is what this is called. Water location value tax. So let's start with a summary. So today's unaffordable housing is a consequence of both our system of planning and our system of money. They've conspired. But wholesale reform to either is as good as politically impossible. With Britain's overleverage to housing, the financial repercussions of markedly lower house prices are politically intolerable. Instead, we propose to bypass the housing market altogether with an initiative to repopulate the underused rivers, quays, docks and canals of Britain with houseboats, barges and floating homes. Local authorities and the land registry will determine who owns the water and the land beside it. Most water is nationally owned. That which is not needed for transportation, i.e. the middle of rivers, will be parcelled off into small plots to be sold to individual owners, not corporate entities, on which they can then build or buy then more floating homes and other edifices. An annual water tax will then be levied along the lines of Henry George's single tax, land value tax, based on the rental value of the plot, payable to the local authority and to the body in charge of the waterway, usually the Canal River Trust. 20 housing ministers since 1999. The unaffordability of housing has, for 20 years or more, been one of the biggest issues in the country. And as if to illustrate the priority this problem is being given in Whitehall, we have this. Now, there's a chart I've shown of how there are over 20 housing ministers. There's been over 20 housing ministers in the last 20 years. The average length of a housing minister in the UK is like 15 months. Um, it's not what you would call evidence of a long-term strategy. And it seems absurd that we should have any crisis at all. The house does not cost a lot of money to build. In China, it has long been the case that a 3D printer can build a home in a day for about 3,000 quid. Here in the UK, you can buy a flat-back, three-bed house, which takes six to seven hours to erect, and it's yours for 24 grand. I've put links to both of those in the article. Meanwhile, there is no shortage of land. Little more than 4% of the land in England and Wales is built on, even less in Scotland. This was the finding of the National Ecosystem Assessment in 2011. Just 1.1% of rural and urban land in England and Wales has domestic property on it. Another 1% has commercial property and 2% is roads. The rest, about 95%, is not built on. You could, in theory, double the housing stock of England and Wales using little more than 1% of land. It's more complicated than that, but you take my point. How on earth, then, have we got into the situation that in 21st century Britain, almost an entire generation is priced out? So, underlying cause of high house prices, number one, money supply. 
Between 1997 and 2007, the population grew by 5%, yet the housing stock grew by 10%. If house prices were a simple function of supply and demand, they would have fallen slightly over the period. Instead, they tripled. Mortgage lending over the same period went up by 370%. It was the increased supply of money which caused house prices to rise. Money supply increased at a rate of roughly 11.5% per annum in the 40 years between 1971 and 2011. Some 40% of it went into residential and commercial property. Roughly speaking, house price inflation mirrored money supply growth. The Bank of England has a remit to curb inflation, but it doesn't include house prices or money supply growth in its standard measures, and so house price inflation went unchecked. If interest rates had reflected 11.5% annual money supply growth, house price inflation would have been stopped in its tracks. Underlying cause number two, planning. Planning laws are the second part of the problem. The newly created money poured into a market which had limited ability to expand. The 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, passed by Clement Attlee's Labour government, became the foundation of modern town and country planning in the UK, followed by new statutes in 1990 and 2004. It was founded on the laudable aim that all of the land of the country is used in the best interests of the whole people. What happened, however, was that it became difficult to get permission to build anything, so had the effect of reinforcing the monopoly of the landowner. Today, just 6,000 or so landowners, the Crown, large institutions and a few rich families, own more than 70% of UK land. Most people don't have the time and resources to navigate planning laws, so house building has become the preserve of a few large corporations. An acre of rural land worth £10,000 becomes an acre of land worth as much as a million once it has planning permission. This is an expensive and utterly needless cost of government, and it goes a long way to explain why house prices are so much higher than build prices. The Act led to huge concentrations of both people and capital in areas that were already built up, especially London, and brought vast, unearned wealth to those who owned at the expense of those who didn't. Our most beautiful domestic architecture was predominantly built in the 18th and 19th century before planning laws. The more planning there is, the uglier buildings seem to get. This is causation, not correlation. It's inevitable when the final say on creative decisions is in the hands of planners and regulators. Imagine Van Gogh needing regulatory approval on a painting. Here are some nice houses. There's some pictures. I've posted some nice pictures of houses built before planning laws. Why this housing crisis is unsolvable. To solve the crisis requires two things, money reform and planning reform. Both are such huge undertakings with such opposing vested interests as to be almost unachievable. As a nation, Britain is over-leveraged, over-leveraged to housing. Too many people have too much money tied up in their house. The economic risks of significantly lower prices are high. What party, standing for lower house prices, would actually get elected? Homeowners are more likely to vote than renters. The house price crash of 1989-94 was a major factor in making the Tories unelectable for half a generation. No party wants such a fate. A land value tax along the lines of the single tax suggested by Henry George would go a long way to resolving many of the housing market's distortions. But there is as little chance of that as there is of money and planning reform. Politicians promising new taxes when there is no national emergency tend not to be popular. Margaret Thatcher's community charge is one of many examples. 
This is an impossible deadlock. We must seek a solution elsewhere. In his 2009 essay, The Education of a Libertarian, tech entrepreneur Peter Thiel argued that political change cannot be achieved through political activism. Instead, one must find an escape from politics in all its forms, he says, and focus on technologies that create a new space for freedom. The internet, for example, was one such new space, albeit a virtual one. In the future, seasteading or outer space might be. The mode for escape, he says, must involve some sort of new and hitherto untried process that leads us to some undiscovered country. It might be that there is an undiscovered country that exists in the middle of every major city of the, in the UK, on its water. The most valuable real estate in the world. There is a, prime, there is a piece of prime central London real estate, bigger than Hyde Park and better located. It is undeveloped. 150 years ago, Londoners were making more use of it than they are today. Yet, it could create all sorts of possibilities for people, not least billions of pounds worth of business, as well as lighten London's chronic congestion and housing problems. The River Thames. I lived for many years on a barge docked on the Isle of Dock, Dogs. How it used to frustrate me as we drove up and down the river that this enormous resource, the Thames, was barely used. A few party pleasure and tour boats and barges carrying freight, HMS Belfast, the Thames Clippers, a couple of floating restaurant bars and the occasional mooring for houseboats. That's pretty much it. Plenty of office and apartment blocks have been built along each side. What a missed opportunity to produce something beautiful that was. But in front of them, from Teddington Lock to the Isle of Dogs and beyond, there is mile upon mile of unused bank wall, foreshore and river with hardly any activity. If you look at a picture of Canaletto's Greenwich Hospital, painted on the southern tip of the Isle of Dogs in around 1750, it is a haven of activity. Boats ferrying people about, um, delivering goods, industry, commerce, as well as people living in boats moored on the river. It was bustling. If you look at that same view today, and I've posted pictures in the article, there is nothing going on. I took some pictures from either side of Vauxhall Bridge during the rush hour a couple of years ago, and I've posted then. Again, plenty happening on either side of the Thames, but on the river itself, nothing. We cross the Thames, we walk along the side of it, we look at it occasionally, we take boat trips on it, but we don't actually use it. The River Thames used to be the lifeblood of London, and we have lost touch with it. The story is the same in so many cities, not just across the country, but across the world. Each one has its own water, its docks, its quays, its rivers, its canals. But in, almost invariably, the banks have been developed in some way. The docks of Liverpool, Cardiff, Salford or Birmingham, for example. But the water itself just sits there, looking on, ignored. Canary Wharf is another example. Even there, so much of the key water goes unused. The waterways of Britain have become a relative economic desert. There should be houseboats, barges, floating structures, shops, restaurants, workplaces, offices, cinemas, theatres, small craft ferrying people in between. The possibilities are enormous. Of course, there are ecological and aesthetic concerns, but these can be addressed. In London especially, but elsewhere too, there are safety issues with the tide and currents. But these are challenges which can easily be overcome by entrepreneurs, engineers and inventors between them. They managed 200 years ago. 
Take a leaf out of Venice's book. Take a leaf out of Amsterdam's book, out of Seattle or Vancouver's book. But the mayor cannot just shout, everyone in a boat. How then to develop our water? How to do it well? And why has it not happened before? Without clear ownership, capital will not be invested. One of the barriers to development has been lack of clear ownership. On the non-tidal Thames, from Teddington Lock to the source in Oxfordshire, for example, there are riparian rights, riparian rights. The owner of the bank has ownership of the river bed to the middle of the river. However, the middle of the river must be left clear for craft to pass and the Environment Agency limits what can and can't be done. I'd really like if a lawyer who knows about this stuff can confirm that. On the tidal Thames, however, which stretches from Teddington Lock to the estuary, these riparian rights are less clear. The Port of London Authority, the PLA, inherited ownership of the riverbed and the foreshore from the City of London in 1907. The bank and one boat width immediately next to it are owned by somebody else. Often there is a dispute over ownership of the wall alongside the river. Many moorings, Reed Wharf by Tower Bridge, Nine Elms in Vauxhall, St Mary's Church in Battersea, for example, have been there for decades, yet they are all constantly in and out of legal disputes over ownership. Much of the problem is that ownership was never registered and recorded in the same way that normal land was. Water moves. When ownership isn't clear, capital is less likely to be risked. Things then fall into disrepair. Take a look at the moorings by St Mary's Church in Battersea if you want to see the depths of disrepair to which boats on an unmaintained mooring can sink, literally. This could be such a beautiful mooring. The spot's gorgeous. It was before they built those horrible glass buildings next to it. This disrepair gives rise to nimbyism. Riverside properties don't want their view of the river spoiled by grotty old boats. When they have control of the access point on the bank to the water, they have control of what can and can't happen. Moored boats complain those who live on the river even if lived on for many years, have fewer rights than squatters. They can be moved on with little notice or permission. The waters of Britain, for the most part, are nationally owned under the stewardship of the Canal River Trust. The Environment Agency also has a role. In the case of the Tidal Thames, the Port of London Authority is the body responsible. These bodies made certain decisions about how the waterways were to be used. No residential development on the Thames was one. But these decisions were taken without any kind of public vote. All three would vehemently defend this charge, but they have proved barriers to rather than facilitators of progress. And none are popular with those who live on boats. Our goal is to sell small plots of water on docks, canals, rivers, quays, wherever there's ample space, to private, not corporate, owners. The owner not the public body, will then have the say as to what they moor there. So how ironic that a land value tax could be the answer. This is the solution. The local authority, together with the land registry, should parcel up each area of water, foreshore and bank in its jurisdiction into plots with a register of who owns what. Most of the water is nationally owned, but there may be some dispute over ownership of access points and banks. 
These will be resolved in due course, as I'll explain. Each plot that is nationally owned where should then be put up for auction, with a 125-year lease, some for domestic use, some for commercial. The proceeds of that sale go to the local authority and the body in charge of the water on a 70-30 basis. We want to encourage individual owners. We want to discourage property speculators, landlords, corporate developers. So there will be a maximum size to each plot and no body may buy more than one at this stage. Buyers of domestic plots could be individuals or families, but no corporations. Against every plot, a tax is then levied, which should be a proportion, likely 10%, of the annual rental value of that plot. The tax is agreed in advance and the percentage rate fixed for the duration of the lease. Thus, everyone will know where they stand. No chains are allowed in the commercial plots, small businesses only. Every year, for 125 years, the lessee will pay, say, 10% of the rental value of the plot. If he or she doesn't want to pay the tax, they sell the plot to someone who's happy to. Rental values can be assessed every three years, but they're pretty easy to determine. You just look at what nearby plots are renting for. So let's say the rental value of a plot is £10,000, then the annual tax payable would be £1,000. The tax revenue, as with the sale money, is shared 70-30 between the local authority and the body in charge of the waterway in that area, usually the Canal River Trust, thereby providing an income stream for both. These bodies then have an obligation to spend or invest that tax revenue, maintaining and improving the waterways in consultation with those who live on them. The lure of the tax and the sale revenue should encourage the compliance of both in the scheme. But the order should come from above, from central government. The administration of the tax should settle many issues surrounding ownership. In many cases, it should force disputes to be settled. The obligation to pay tax will force many owners either to make use of the plot to develop it in some way, a way that is ecologically and aesthetically agreeable, of course, or to sell it to someone who will. Once ownership is clear and development possible, capital will follow. With individual families and small businesses developing floating properties according to their own needs and wants, self-build, essentially, we are guiding development along the lines of a Schumacherian small-is-beautiful ethos. The large building corporations not to mention the regulators who approve their projects, who between them have brought Britain's its bland and characterless architecture of the last 70 years, will not be involved in any way. There will be certain craft specifications, usually a limit on size, but the main say will lie with the creator, not the regulator. We do not want homo homogenisation, but individuality and character. Individuals developing their own places to live and work will have a far greater incentive to create something unique and beautiful than a planner looking to tick boxes. Houses and boats and barges can be bought and sold for much closer to their build costs, a far cry from the astronomical prices paid elsewhere. It's unlikely that banks will lend recklessly, if at all, and this will keep excess money creation out of this market. The obligation to pay tax should deter speculators and land bankers. Beautiful floating edifices can be built, 
homes, places of work and entertainment, water commerce can flourish once again, congestion elsewhere can ease, fantastic communities can flourish, boating communities are as close-knit and happy as you get, and thus do we create a thriving new opportunity in the middle of our cities at a low cost to entrance. A market-based policy to alleviate the UK's housing shortage. Thank you very much for listening. Please share your thoughts. I'm particularly interested in any data there is on how much water is there actually is in the UK. Uh, please share this with a friend. Cheerio.